Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, and welcome back to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and we talk a lot about the multi 30,000 piece puzzle of healthcare and health IT, and each one of our guests gets to hold a piece of that and share their knowledge. So I'm really excited to have today's guests on the show. Lisa, can you please share with us a little bit about your background and your piece of the healthcare IT puzzle? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Joy. I am a clinical psychologist by training, and I currently sit as the chief clinical officer at Behavior Inc. What that means is that I lead behaviors clinical direction, as well as our overall research strategy. So I get to design the clinical content of our interventions and then go out and collect the data to make sure that what we're doing actually makes an impact and is effective for for our patients. So that's my main role and seat right now. It's been this really amazing piece for me in terms of like where I sit in the landscape in that I have devoted really my whole career to trying to get proven, effective mental health and behavioral health interventions to the people who need them. And I've gone about that in lots of different ways and then landed at this really amazing seat in a digital mental health company that is really, I think, at the crux of being able to bring these things to people on a really wide scale. So it's been very exciting. And I still get to hold on to my academic credentials and academic experiences, which is really where I came from. It seems like changing behavior is one of the most difficult things to try to get people to do. So how can you share with us and our audience a little bit how you get that to do? My understanding is, is, is through VR technology. Is that accurate? The VR technology is really our delivery platform to a large degree. And what we're delivering is you know, cognitive behavioral and acceptance and commitment-based therapies, which have been proven effective in real-life therapy, you know, outside of VR. VR becomes the platform for delivering these interventions that we know can effectively change people's behavior when they're delivered, you know, by a psychotherapist or, you know, a mental health professional more in real life. But I think the VR platform not only increases access to individuals because we know how hard it is to find a mental health specialist right now, 
but also brings with it this increased power, I think, to change behavior just through the medium itself, because it's really fun to engage with VR. It's incredibly immersive. It holds all of your attention when you're in the VR headset in a way that even if I have a patient in my office, they can be looking around my office, they can be paying attention to other things. When you're in the VR headset, you really can't notice anything but what's presented to you. So VR isn't necessarily the mechanism of action that's changing people's behavior. It's our delivery means, but I think it also provides some mechanism to accelerate potentially those means of delivering the treatment. So what are the kind of what are the kind of behaviors that people come to try to change? What would a diagnosis or something that they would be needing support with with the headset or inside or outside of VR ultimately? So really what we are is a company that is developing very specific behavioral health interventions, mental health interventions to be brought to market either as direct-to-consumer wellness applications that an individual can purchase in you know, an app store or app lab or digital therapeutics that are FDA cleared for very specific diagnoses. So we're going after FDA cleared medical device um, um, classification for our specific therapeutics that we're developing. So it's less of a model at behavior that people might come to behavior looking for help with a range of problems. And then we would use VR to solve those and more of a model for we would be the provider of a specific therapeutic device for a specific disorder. Right now, we're focused on the most common problems that individuals seek mental health, behavioral health treatment for. And those are anxiety, depression, chronic pain, and substance use. So, and and really a lot of people have all of those things together. So they really are the most common problems. So what would they experience? I actually, I feel like I have tried one of the VR headsets before. And if I remember correctly, I walked into sit by a waterfall and got to like just look at the waterfall and the time. And it was very peaceful. And I'm somebody who meditates on a regular basis and it just felt very, very like immersive and peaceful. I was like, oh, I could see why this is something that you know people would want to spend their time here. Yeah, so it's such a good experience that you've had because it's really indicative of what most available mental health-ish, like self-help types of interventions or platforms look like in VR right now. There's a lot of VR mindfulness and meditation apps that individuals can purchase directly that I think have their place in the landscape of wellness and mental wellness for sure. What we're developing is really a more comprehensive, immersive, multi-session intervention. So rather than it being one experience you know, or even a library of mindfulness experiences that you could choose from, there's a progressive program that we expect patients to go through that mirrors what treatment might look like in real life for a disorder. And so we have a partnership with Sumitomo Pharmaceuticals to develop a number of VR interventions for anxiety and depression, for example. And those will look 
very much like what cognitive behavioral therapy with a therapist looks like. There'll be a session that you start on on day one. That session gives you a model of how our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors connect to each other. Day two, you learn more about how to change the feelings in your body through something like mindfulness. And then as you progress, you know, day three might be learning more about how your thoughts affect your emotions and then doing cognitive restructuring over time in the VR platform and eventually doing exposures to the things that scare you in VR. It's a very specific pathway and and session by session format for each of our interventions that we're developing. So it looks a lot different than I think what is more widely available in VR currently. I know what I have anxiety over. And I'm just like, oh, I wonder if I could practice because I have anxiety over speaking on the phone in Spanish. I'm based out of Mexico and I'm like, oh, I feel good if I can see somebody, you know, their lips moving or have some sort of, you know, connection with them as far as communicating. But when it's on the phone, oh my gosh, I just like everything in me just goes tingly. I'm like, is there a VR program for that so I could practice getting over it? Not yet, but I like that idea a lot. (laughs) It does mirror a little bit of what we're developing for some of our social anxiety exposures where people are going to get to practice different types of social settings and situations and social performance types of scenarios, including public speaking and speaking one-on-one to people that make them nervous. And when we do when we do exposure therapy in real life, some of it is relatively easy to do in real life. So I always think of examples of people who are you know, children who are afraid of dogs, for example, it's not super difficult to get a pet store or someone to let you have a kid play with a puppy for a little while and then eventually bring a larger dog into your office. But if what you're afraid of is interactions with other people, that can be really tricky because I can't always control what those other people are going to do, right? So if I send a patient to a coffee shop to say hi to the first three or four people they meet. I don't know if those people are going to be friendly or not. I can't make it, this is your least scary, this is your puppy, because you're going to say hi to those people and they're going to be super friendly to you. And then your big Doberman pincher is going to be those people are rude, because I don't know when you go to the coffee shop what those people are going to look like and be like to you. But in VR, we create videos of these social experiences so we can really control just how difficult and easy they are over time. So yeah, maybe at one point we can make them (laughs) speaking to people in other languages. Well, I would definitely benefit from that. (laughs) What about the transition to like the metaverse? I feel like there is a connection to the, and I'm not very well versed in the metaverse. So can you maybe like share with me and our listeners, I don't know, what's the connection with VR and the metaverse and VR therapeutics there. Sure. I I think, first of all, don't feel uncomfortable about not being very well-versed in the metaverse because I think everyone's still figuring out exactly what it's going to be and what it's going to look like, though we all like to talk about it a lot. Really, the idea of the metaverse, though, is sort of the idea of the internet, right? That it's a platform for which everything that happens in VR will take place. And that Years ago, it was hard to even imagine what the internet would be and wrapping your head around how many things we would do online and how it would affect all of the way that we do business and run our social lives and everything else. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about the metaverse. And so 
healthcare is really still figuring out exactly how it will interface with VR and the metaverse. But absolutely, we see behavior as being situated within the metaverse. And we're working on ways in which people would be able to access their treatment through other access points in the metaverse more broadly, whether that's accessing it directly by purchasing one of our wellness products or potentially even accessing it through finding a provider in the metaverse that then might be the person who prescribes your prescription digital therapeutic that's FDA cleared. Have you spent much time? This is genuine question. Have you spent much time in the metaverse? So I will admit that prior to coming to behavior, I had been in VR only once before in my whole life. And my experience, it was a long time ago. And my experience was kind of lukewarm. I had experienced one of the... VR for mental health started with doing exposure therapies for just the reason that I said, because sometimes it was really hard to expose people to certain situations. So I had tried out a fear of flying exposure that makes sense. It's really hard to do that. It's expensive to do that with your patients. And so it was one of the earliest programs for mental health was these virtual reality airplane situations where you could fly without really leaving your office. And this was a long time ago. This was in the 1990s. And it wasn't all that close to reality. And I was underwhelmed by the experience. So I loved the idea when behavior was first pitched to me of VR as a way to increase access, but I needed to see what VR looked like again to really be sold. And wow, we've come a long way. It's amazing right now. I'm spending more and more time in the metaverse now as time goes on. I'm using it more for my own, for exercise and fitness and and meditation. And I just brought my dad, who's in his 80s, his first headset for Father's Day this year. And he's traveling to places he never got to go in his life and kind of checking things off his bucket list in VR, which is just really amazing. It's actually really neat. I used to. Google Maps is similar in the sense that like, oh, I want to go visit Cinque Terre in Italy and I've never had a chance to do that. So let me like go to Google Maps and take that hike, right? But I can only imagine in VR where you probably feel like you're truly there. Yeah, it's an incredible application of VR for sure. Can we shift gears and talk a little bit more about you? Is that okay? Of course. <laughs> I would like Who to doesn't know. like talking yeah. about themselves? <laughs> can you tell me? One thing I'd like to know is... If somebody wanted your job, what path would they take? Like, how would you advise them to be in a leadership role the way that the way that you found where you found yourself? It's a great question. Which one I've been getting a fair amount. You know, I think there's eventually there's going to be a clearer path for mental health and other health professionals within industry that will be you know more broad as more and more digital health companies spring up and there's we've certainly seen an influx of them over the past few years. Currently, I think for most people, the path is really more through leadership outside of industry, especially in mental health, and then making your way into industry over time. And that was definitely what my path was. So I started my career as a research professor at Brown. My research was really focused on exactly the same thing I'm doing now, on how do we bring effective treatments to people who need them. And I did most of that through NIDA and NIMH-funded research 
in mostly primary care settings. So a lot of my work was how do we develop more implementable, scalable cognitive behavioral interventions that could be deployed in primary care settings since that's where most people get their care. And that gave me a lot of the key experiences and expertise that I bring to behavior now, both in terms of the clinical experience in CBT and in acceptance and commitment therapies, the experience in treatment development and making those treatments shorter, more accessible, easier for people to wrap their heads around and and understand the components of, and then also the research experience to be able to test out their effectiveness. But it didn't necessarily put me on the radar, I think, as a leader. I ran my own lab, but you know, there's lots of people who do that. I was offered the position about seven years ago at the VA Boston healthcare system. And that came about in part through some of the clinical training leadership I had done while I had my research professorship at Brown. I was running a postdoctoral fellowship program there, mostly working with other individuals who wanted to be academic researchers and wound up doing a fair amount of training. And I moved into a position at VA Boston where I was running the internship training program there for psychologists. And it's one of the largest ones in the country, as well as serving as the assistant chief of psychology there. So I was able to really get some of my leadership experience and credit, street cred for that under my belt through my experience there. And I think that pathway really brought me into view for recruiters and other people who are looking for leaders for digital mental health companies. What did you major in in high school? Not in high school, and you're in bachelor's and you know and beyond. I wound up with a major in a double major in both psychology and English in undergrad. I did my undergraduate work at Tufts University in, in Medford, Massachusetts. And it took me a while to settle on that. I was a drama major for a pretty long time and eventually Martha into an English major. And I had lots of different thoughts about things I wanted to be doing, but eventually settled in this idea of going to graduate school for clinical psychology. And once I got my heart set on it, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It just felt like the absolute right answer for me, which is a good thing for anyone who wants to be a clinical psychologist because it is a long and fairly expensive road. So you definitely have to be sure you want it. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anyone. There's definitely easier ways to go about finding a career for oneself. I did my graduate training at University of Albany. And that work, I was fortunate to train with Dr. David Barlow, who is probably one of the top names in cognitive behavioral therapy in the, in the world. And really got amazing training in how to not only deliver cognitive behavioral therapies, but how to test them and how to really do those things hand in hand in this clinician scientist viewpoint that led me very easily into a research career. And that's kind of long-term how I wound up here. I was also an English major and I also thought that I was going to be a psych major, but I took my first psychology class and was like, nope, this isn't for me. I, I knew right away that it wasn't the path that I wanted. So I feel you. It sounds like you have to have a passion for it to really 
take down, take that road on. And it also sounds like maybe your 10 year old self didn't know what you wanted. Like, like, I love asking this question too. Like how different are, is your career now than what your 10 year old self thought that you would be doing? I love that question because throughout my life, I definitely thought about all different kinds of careers. Even there were times in graduate school where I was like, why am I doing this? It's so hard. My friends are making money and I'm not. And I went back to thinking about maybe I want to be a writer, maybe I want to be a journalist, or maybe I'll go to law school. But a few years ago, I was helping my parents clean out our old family home. And I found this essay I had written in fourth grade. So I think I was about 10 years old exactly. And I wrote about it was, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up essay? And I wrote about being a psychologist. And I was shocked because I didn't remember ever having thought that or really even knowing what that was. You know, I didn't I didn't get treatment myself as a child. So the fact that it was somehow on my radar back then was this really funny thing to find out. So in some ways, I guess I'm doing my 10-year-old self's dream job. In other ways, working at a company that builds VR interventions is something my 10-year-old self could have never, ever, ever imagined. I'm old enough that when I was 10, I think Atari had just come out and I was fascinated by Pong. So, you know, the idea of VR interventions would have never, ever crossed my mind. I think I'd be, my 10-year-old self would be pretty amazed with what I do right now. I have very vivid memories of watching Tron. You remember Tron, the movie? I guess that's kind of like a VR experience. <laughs> that's like what I would be able to imagine around that time. Good for you. That's great. How What a, what a like, reassuring thing to find that you're like fulfilling your childhood dreams. Absolutely. (laughs) Last question, advice. Do you have advice for anybody who is perhaps starting their career? I like to think if there's any challenge that you could help somebody else skip over hopscotch, what would you tell them? Yeah, because this is hit like a girl. And I think because I am, I think I'm frequently asked as a working parent um, to talk about these kind of things specifically. I may focus there a little bit, if that's okay. Please. Because I think that's been one of the hardest pieces is that you know, in psychology, especially, though I know this is true in lots of careers, but in psychology, the number of graduate students, the proportion of graduate students that identify as female far outweighs those that identify as male. And yet in leadership positions, absolutely the reverse is true. So you're much less likely to go into psychology if you're identified as male, but then you're far more likely to find yourself at the head of the table, which is really frustrating for a lot of reasons, obviously. And I think a lot of it is obvious. There's systemic bias and there's other things to overcome as a woman in the field. But there's also this piece where I think sometimes we are just sold a bill of goods that we can't have it all. And that this idea of chasing work-life balance is really important. And you know, balance becomes this euphemism for time with your children and time with your family. And you feel super guilty if you're not doing that all or if you're giving too much time to work. You know, I think my advice there has always been, first of all, like there's no right way to do it. There's no, there's no magic advice. It's really hard and it's hard for everyone. You have to find what works for you. But that I think one approach is to get really comfortable with disappointing people. And I know that sounds a bit like bizarre advice, but that's my advice. Get comfortable with disappointing people because if you're going into things trying to make 
everybody happy, your, your people outside your work, whether that is that you have children or a partner or parents or other people and everyone at work, there's just no way to do that all. And so, especially when my kids were younger, I remember going to work most day thinking, okay, like who's going to be disappointed in me today? Because it's either going to be someone at work or one of my kids, because I can't be everywhere at once. But that disappointment is a sign that people have high expectations for you, right? If people don't expect anything of you, you can't disappoint them. And if they have high expectations of you, it's probably because overall, you're doing a lot of things right. So it's okay to disappoint people on occasion and kind of lean into that and don't be afraid of it. I cannot tell you how much I love that advice. That is amazing advice. And it makes me think about just self-love and understanding boundaries and like a way of respecting yourself too. That it's like, okay, when you're following something that is true for you, something that you truly care about, you might have to say no to something that somebody else wants. Like I even saw somebody writing a list around like, okay, what what do other people want for me? What, what do I need to do? What do I want to do? And what do other people want me to do? And finding the balance between that and making sure that you're keeping yourself on that list, right? And as a priority. I love that. I think sometimes that's so hard for us to do. I think particularly for women in that sometimes it gets really hard to separate or even be aware of what do other people want me to do and what do I want to do and know which one's which? Yeah. Because we often are living so much of our lives to please other people that we kind of forget whether or not it's for ourselves. So getting more in touch with what you actually value and what's really important to you is key. It's advice I give my kids all the time too. You know, when they get overwhelmed with schoolwork or things like that, or trying to, you know, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on kids and teens right now to sort of be perfect at everything. You, know, you don't have to give 100% to everything. Find the things you actually really care about and give those things 100%. But the things that aren't important to you, like it's okay to kind of phone it in on some things. Because we can't do everything all the time. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think I'll even use some of that advice myself. I love that. (laughs) If people want to get in touch with you, follow your your work, work with you, where would you direct them? I'm on LinkedIn. And that's an easy place to find me. Just Risa Weisberg, PhD. If you look at LinkedIn, you can find me there. Also on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Weisberg. On Twitter is an easy place to find me as well. Um, You can also find me through the behavior.com website. There's ability to reach out and contact any of us at Behavior there. And we're B-E-H-A-V-R.com. I love it. I love the play on words there. It's good. It's great. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really a pleasure to get to know you. Thanks, Ray. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon.